All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck Ricans? What the fuck Tuckians? What the fuckanoids? I don't know where that one came from. What's happening? I'm Mark. This is my show. Welcome to the show. It's WTF. It's a podcast. I will welcome new people as I see fit here at the beginning of the show. I hope you're doing all right. Today on the show, I'm going to chat with... Uh, Going to have a slightly contentious but fun ball-busting chat with my old buddy Godfrey. Godfrey has a, a Showtime special that is now available on demand at Showtime. His, uh, his special, it's called Regular Black. Uh, it's on Showtime, but you can watch it, uh, of course, anytime uh, on Showtime on demand. Later in the show, Werner Herzog, the film director, documentary director, writer, uh, actor, but uh, a, a force of nature will be on the show for a bit. We're going to talk about his new film, his new documentary, which was I found to be uh, uh, frightening, but also very life embracing. But I tend to lean towards the frightening. Uh, his it's called Lo and Behold: Reveries of the Connected World. It's in theaters and on demand this Friday, August nineteenth. Uh, it was great to talk to him. Uh, it was uh, I was nervous because he is a uh, a very specific and defined presence and uh, an astoundingly uh, prolific artist. And I enjoyed having him here in the garage and hopefully you will enjoy our conversation. Also, tickets going fast. And I'm happy to say that because I was, um, I'm always nervous about how things will go. But the Carnegie Hall pre-sale went very well. And now tickets are on sale in a larger way. I don't know what that means. Uh, more outlets, uh, more promotion. So uh, congratulations to those who got tickets for my November 4th show at Carnegie Hall in New York City during the pre-sale because uh, a lot of those seats went very quickly. And now they're open to the general public in a broader way. They're on sale Full on. So you can go to nycomedyfestival.com, nycomedyfestival.com, find my little mug, my little face, click on it, and get tickets to my November 4th Carnegie Hall show. I'm very excited about it. My buddy Nate Bargetzi is going to do uh, the opening slot. I'm, I'm thrilled, but there's part of me that thinks um, maybe that should be it. Maybe that should be the last thing. Carnegie Hall, and then like, I'm good. I'm going to live on an island off the coast of Seattle now in a small house with several cats who are unafraid of coyotes. But I don't know, there are wolves up there? Anyway, Carnegie Hall, tickets on sale. NYComedyFestival.com. So a couple of things. I'm reading this book, and uh, I don't lock into books that often in a way that I'm like, holy shit, this is the best book I've read in a long time. It's a nonfiction book. It had been sitting around in a pile of books I had for a long time. I get a lot of shit, folks. People send me a lot of stuff. Publishers send me stuff. So I get a radio station almost. I just get tons of stuff. I had to get an office to process stuff. And a lot of stuff moves through. A lot of stuff moves on. Some books I uh, donate to the library. Some records I use to barter for other records. But this book, it just sat there. And I'm like, that book is something. There's something in that book. I didn't know what was in it, but I held on to it. It's called Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic by a guy named Sam Quinones. I'm, I don't know if I'm saying his name right. I'm pronouncing it like that. Q-U-I-N-O-N-E-S. Quinones, I'm going to say. I don't know how he pronounces it. I apologize if that's wrong, Sam. 
but I, I'm going to try to talk to Sam. But this is um, this book is. It, if did you read Fast Food Nation? Fast Food Nation about the fast food industry was an astoundingly compelling journalistic endeavor that changed my life, changed the way I thought about a lot of things. This book, Dreamland, it does the same thing except for black tar heroin and oxycodone. It it is it moves through several different um, trajectories and storylines to sort of give you a historical perspective of the painkiller epidemic that in turn led to the black tar heroin epidemic all the way down to geographical locations, economic um, realities, uh, pharmaceutical uh, uh, posturing, misinformation, but it really goes all the way back and all the way through the uh, the pain management racket that my father was uh, involved with for a time, and you know, and into the Mexican heroin, uh, black tar heroin racket, which uh, had an, a very unique and distinct business structure that was essentially nonviolent. This is what's amazing about this book, in a lot of ways, aside from everything. Uh, historically and journalistically, is that this is a story of a massive national drug industry, black you know black tar heroin, a a illegal drug industry that has very little violence, and that should be compelling. It is. It's a great book. Hopefully, I'm going to find Sam and talk to him. I believe he lives down the street, but it's blowing my mind. Pick it up, Dreamland, by Sam Quinones. I hope, I hope, uh, good job, Sam, if you're listening. You know, I, you know, I, I have bluster, I have bravado, I have a certain amount of cockiness. I, I do, I do, I, but I am not a uh, fist fighter. I am not a puncher. I am not a punchy. Uh, it's surprising that I have not been a punchy. I, I would think that my, my, myself seems, uh, you know, a, a guy that would, you know, would get his ass kicked a couple of times. So. My girlfriend, Sarah, the painter, lives uh, not far from me, and she was having some problems with a neighbor uh, who rented the the house next to hers from a, a woman who owns the house. And it was a couple, a young couple, who had a couple of dogs, and these dogs started shitting down in the yard. And now the way my girlfriend's house is set up, that the, the backyard of that house next to hers is right in, basically in front of of where her kitchen is. So these dogs are just shitting and shitting and shitting. And this guy who uh, is renting the house is not cleaning up the shit. So there's this waft of horrendous shit smell, dog shit smell coming into her fucking house every goddamn day and building. So there starts the tension. Like, why don't you clean up after your fucking dogs? And he says he will and he doesn't. And then it's just, it's just grown up shit, dude. Now I'm talking to him. So I clean up the dog shit. And then there was an issue of this guy parking his car in front of Sarah's driveway because he can't find other spaces on the street and he feels like he deserves to park in front of uh, the house he's renting. I don't know where he comes from or what his situation is. And he's always in there, you know, you know, shouting about this and that it is, you know, to his girlfriend. It's, it's just one of those escalating neighbor situations. Where it's like, if you don't find a parking space in, in front of your house, welcome to the big city, fella. Take a loop. Loop around, find another place. Grow the fuck up, clean up after your pig dogs. That's the backstory. And I'm hearing about it. You know, so I, I've offered, I said, look, let's go over there and, you know, just talk to him. Try to, you know, reason with this dude about growing the fuck up and learning that, you know, sometimes you don't get the parking space you want. If you have two big fucking dogs, you got to clean up their dog shit. That. 
So I get a call yesterday from Sarah, and she's like, come over. Can you come over now, please? Can you just come over? It's I need you. And then she hung up. Like, and I could hear him yammering, and I didn't know. So, like, I, I'm, I'm worked up, but I'm not, you know, I'm not thinking I'm going to kick this guy's ass, but I'm a little worked up, and I drive over. It's five minutes away, and I drive, and I see him. He's standing out there in his shorts with no shirt on, a little guy with his little sideways haircut and, a, you know, half a beard, you know, no shirt and his sandals, and he's, you know, Sarah's standing there, and I just fucking pull up, and I do that thing where you just slam on the brakes in the middle of the street, pop open the door, step out, and I go, what is the problem? What's the problem here? And this guy immediately starts backpedaling. There's no problem. And I'm like, do we need to call the cops? Do the cops need to be involved in this problem? And she's like, I just, he's parked in the, in the drive. He's like, I was, I was going to move it. I was going to move it. And I wasn't going to leave it here. And I like just came unraveled. And I wasn't going to fucking hit the guy. I was like, I right away said, we could call the cops and work this out. And I'm like, just what is the issue? And he's like, well, I'm sorry. And I just this. I was going to move it. And like, and then it gets to the point where I, I think he's going to cry. And I'm like, oh my God. And like, I'm not, there never once in my mind did I think I was going to hit him or have a physical altercation. I just wanted him to understand that he can't behave the way he's behaving. And he just started spinning and it looked like he was getting gonna, gonna getting choked up. And then I was sort of like, all right, all right, just relax. Will you just take it easy? All right. And, you know, when I got in the car and I found him a parking space and drove off and I was like, what the fuck? Like, like I, you know, I, not only did I not have any violent intentions, but like I didn't want to have to deal with the guy sobbing. So apparently like they started, he started screaming after I left in the house. Like there, there are unenlightened people who solves the problem with fighting. They're animals. Because Sarah thought like, well, when he sees who you are. He's going to he's going to feel pretty embarrassed. But not only did that guy not know who I was, which is an unusual, he thought we were unenlightened animals who only knew how to solve things with fighting. Like, How could you mistake me for a tough guy driving up in my Camry hybrid, getting out of my car, wearing my Iggy and the Stooges T-shirt, you know, in my glasses? They're animals, unenlightened animals. That's me. That's me, just a just a, a a monster, a Neanderthal in a Camry hybrid with my red wing boots on. That animal, complete fucking, comp- just a, a low life monster. I I wanted to, uh, I wanted Sarah and I to to put both of our books on his front uh, porch as a gift from the unenlightened, but you know we decided against it. I just you know I just hope the guy grows up a little bit. That was my only intention. So. Now we come to Godfrey. Godfrey and I go way back. I enjoy him where it's always funny. I, he's one of these people that uh, I like to bust his balls. He receives it well and he needs it. He needs it badly. So this is me and Godfrey doing what me and Godfrey do. You can watch his new special regular black on Showtime. Uh, it's airing here and there, but you can watch it anytime on Showtime on demand. So let's let's do uh, let's do what me and Godfrey do. You want to get on the fucking mic like a professional? Or you just want to stand there like an idiot. <laughs> How do you want to handle it? <laughs> First of all, when you set up the Obama shit and yeah. it was on in your list, it's right after mine. Yeah, I was getting mad heat. I, fucking heat. That's right. In the streets, people are like, I heard you on Marin, one of the best interviews I've ever fucking heard. 
I'm not even lying. No, that's right. You were right before Obama. Yeah, because uh, I, I said you need some more black people on this bitch. Yeah, and I couldn't tell you. I probably couldn't tell you we were. Oh no, was, no, no, you, no, no. You but I said, before. but I right. said, I said, but why does it have to be the super, 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 super famous ones? Get the medium ones. Yeah, medium black. I'm medium, <laughs> medium black, medium yeah. famous. That's me. Kind of yeah. medium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, if all I need is that one thing that'll that'll take <laughs> me to the fun. next level. That's funny. I forgot like you cuz we were And I brought it up. It, and and then your episode, that's what it was. Your episode got so much fucking hits because they everyone who never even heard of the podcast before, they listen, listen to Obama and they're like, "What's another one? What's this one before Obama?" So yeah. it, it all tracked. Like your episode you see was huge. What, you see what because that, of Obama. Thank, thank Obama. Thank Ob fuck that. <laughs> it's all right. I can do him. I can. He, uh, I'm glad I'm here. Yeah, that's uh, pretty this good. This is nice. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, I heard that you need more black people, and uh, yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good, right? Yeah. That's not, even you like it. Yeah, it's you good. know how I would never do an impersonation in front of you. Why? Because you just make that face. No, I doubt. You just go like this. You go like this. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's, a, that's, ah, a, that's me, good. Me being polite. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm not going to laugh at it, but I'll acknowledge you've done something in front of me. Oh, good for you. Good for you. How's that working out for you? That's so fucked up. That's like walking to an audition room and there's a dude on a series already and yeah. he actually uh, and he actually like comes in for that too. Yeah. And he goes, Hey, good luck, guys. Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. As he's walking out. Yeah. Everyone's you. laughing and patting him on the back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who's They're next? Going, yeah. Oh, fuck you. It's the worst. Or when it's the one black part and all every black dude's in there, they go, Yo, fellas, keep it up, man. Fuck out of here. I don't want you here. <laughs> I want black to be, guy. I the want, black guy on television. The, the, the one guy. black guy. <laughs> You guys all know him. Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck. Ah, oh, I'm the only one in a in an audition. Yeah, that I don't fake the funk, man. Yeah, and when a when a certain guy walks in, I go, ah, oh, come on. Yeah, that's what. Because he's what, fake. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You got two shows already. Why are you here? Right. Everyone else goes. Oh, what's up, dude? Oh, what's up? What's good, baby? Oh, yeah. How you been? I'm like this. Everything no. sucks right now. Yeah, yeah. Nothing's fucking good. And you, why are you, you here? Why are you taking all the work? Why are you taking all the goddamn work? <laughs> yeah. You know what? Black actors can actually say, why are you taking all the work? Because it's yeah. not a lot. Yeah. I can right. actually say. Right. White dudes can't say that shit. Yeah. How about spreading it around? Spread it. Spread it. Take a break. Hey, man. How I about got, hit I got the bench, whole, buddy? I, I got this whole <laughs> thing. Steve Harvey hosts everything. Yeah. I mean, he really, he really does. He hosts everything. I know it's weird though. Like you watch him, and like you know, it's not like you're not going like, "Hey, yeah, there's Steve Harvey." You know, it's, he's just sort of this thing that's. It's like it's it's like the TV being on. There's Steve Harvey's involved. You know what I mean? Like I saw him. I don't even know what the show was, but it, he, just he was sitting there talking to a kid. I'm like, "What fucking show right. is this?" It's called Big Shots. Yeah, hot little big shots. When I was, so, I actually watched it for a minute though. It's and like I watched the Art Link Letter shit. Uh, but I watched it without sound. It must have been on a plane or something. Mm. And I was watching him listen to kids. He was listening to them because I talk to people. Right. And I'm like, it'd be very easy. Like, oh, God. You know, that's not an easy thing no. to sit there and act interested in a fucking kid. It's <laughs> <No. That's> true. <laughs> Little fuckers. Yeah. But he was like listening and he, he was, was like, you know, the kid felt comfortable. It's not right. easy to make kids right. in front of all those people feel comfortable. That's true. And and he was really picking his spots. And I was watching it all without sound. This kid must have been a some sort of a little Asian kid, a piano wizard. That's so redundant to me. 
It's redundant. Little but there's... Asian kids that can play piano. Fuck that. Like if you see, uh, they should have a black little kid doing math. Have an Asian kid tap dance it, then I'm impressed. Don't fuck it. Don't uh, challenge the Asian, Asian kids to do but anything. But Asian kids good. doing concertos, that's old. They were doing that shit in the 80s. Yeah, but there's only a few of them, isn't there? How no. many are there? What? There's a billion. Uh, no, I know oh. of, of them that can play piano can like play that. Piano. Okay, out of the billion, at least at least 100 million. <laughs> 100 million of like fucking asshole parents. Immediately on birth. Dude, they have them playing concertos, but an Asian kid playing concerto is boring. A black kid playing concerto, more interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because they don't think we know what concertos are. But how many black guys even really tap dance anymore? Just that one guy? Well, at auditions, we're still doing it. <laughs> oh, you mean metaphorically? <laughs> metaphorically. We've never stopped. <laughs> <laughs> right. At yeah. auditions. Oh, I'm like, da, 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 da. oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm still doing that shit. So what are you doing out here? Okay. I had a gap. I had a gap. And I said to my girl, I said, yo, I think I should go to LA and I Airbnb'd for the first time. Really? I never did that before. Where did where'd they put you? Uh well Airbnb. You choose it, yeah. I, I I'm on Beverly yeah. by El Coyote. Oh yeah, yeah. It's and it's this painter dude. Yeah. He and it's this little room. It has yeah. a, it's a bathtub, shower, whatever, whatever. I have my cable, whatever. It's yeah. a, and I have this old school nineteen twenties bed. Yeah. It's like one single bed, then you can pop up another bed. It's yeah. like old school shit. Oh, the trundle bed. The trundle bed. Yeah. Yeah. So um it's it's cool. It's clean. I paid like for like ten days, seven hundred something dollars. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. You know what I mean? I yeah. have a refrigerator. I don't now, have a stove, but now, now you're in though. You're gonna be Airbnb and all the fucking I'm time. Airbnb in my fucking ass off. And it's not he doesn't live there, he lives next door, but that's he has he has a lot of artist friends. So many people do that. They just have they buy houses to do that. Dude, they, they it, just well, like, it's the shit because these hotels try to fuck you, man. Like how much for a day? Come get the fuck. Yeah. Come on. You see, that's when you let this lets you know that I haven't made it, made it yet. I'm fucking Airbnb I, I, and shit. I, you didn't have to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I come here. <laughs> that's why I come here. I come here to get fucked up. <laughs> I, was, I, I didn't have to tell you. You like I can just aware. look at you and see. Ah, oh, word out in the street. There is no word out on the street. I can tell by the emails, dude. <laughs> I did say that. I said, "Dude, thanks a lot!" with exclamation point. <laughs> but no, like, yeah. can uh, can I come back on? Yeah, I, to, I don't. Yeah, do I have no problem begging. I don't give a shit. But wait, so uh, what? What, what, what? So you're just hanging out? No, I have a bunch of meetings. Yeah, a bunch of meetings. Yeah, of course, I'm doing a laugh factory and. You know the improv and the comedy store, but I I wanted to come out because I needed to face to face Sounds with like everybody. Meetings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Face to face with my agents. Blah 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 blah. And I said I need to call Marin, and I wanted to come back to this. I didn't know you didn't do repeats. Well, we do the short ones, which is fine. I didn't know though. But there's only certain guys that I get you know that I have a thing where we can talk. Yeah, me and you are good. We're am funny. I, am yeah. I good? Oh yeah. No, people am love I, when we talk. You act like I asked you to be in a comedy team. What the fuck? <laughs> Good feel like you guys, you and Godfrey are good together. Like, don't. I'm so glad I'm doing okay. Because that'd be someone's shitty idea. You guys ever think of no, oh, no, not <laughs> hell, fucking no. <laughs> How would that be? Just two guys laughing at each other, hurting each other's feelings. <laughs> That's, that's what the, I like about it. you're such a loner. You don't even hang out with your own people. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like, well, people are like you don't have any black friends. I don't have any friends. Three. 
Yeah, one know, dude I you call. Know, you know, you're the only person that can say I don't see color. Yeah, because they're not over <laughs> they're here. Never, no one's there. white, black. No and one's Mark at the house. says I don't see color. He's not bullshitting you. He does. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, but I'm saying this, Mark. Yes, I don't give a shit. I'm putting my bid in. That's how you. I see all these dudes yeah. going on other people's podcasts because they got a dude that accepts them you're the, you're the dude you actually let me come over you hang out you talk you like let me on your shit yeah and everyone gets that yeah. i don't get that yeah you know what i mean yeah i'm willing to give you a break i'm giving you a big if break. it has to come from this so fucking be it <laughs> if i have to fly out to la just to do your shit i would do that shit <laughs> i will airbnb for two days to do marin i don't fuck around if it's like once a month whatever the fuck i'm putting my dib in as your nubian friend i've changed the name i'm not black anymore dog now it's nubian fuck black why, let what, me tell you why what's Can the kachina doll again kachina's cocapelli cocapelli and nubian Coca, but listen nubian cocapelli i'm gonna tell you why i want to i want to be nubian now okay, what all right i'm your nubian friend let me tell you why yeah but that sounds like it's sort of like it's 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 almost space age yeah it is why not I, we're in a high-tech fucking era now is this the new hook Noob, listen, this right. is real. Right. Like, you know how they put the bids up? It went, it, first it was colored, Negro, yeah. colored, yeah. African American. Fucking Nubian. Let me tell you why. Okay. Because I understand why you'll see black people who are half black, whatever. They'll, they'll, they'll talk about everything else but being black, even though they look it. They'll go, I'm Swedish. Right. I'm Irish. Right. I'm, and you're looking at them like, okay, you're skipping. Yeah. You're skipping. You're <laughs> wait, skipping. Wait. You're, but they go, then they'll say black. But if you look at phonetically, Irish sounds amazing. Like I'm Irish. Yeah. I'm Swedish. The yeah. ish. Yeah. It's a sweet word. Mm -hmm. Black fucks it all up phonetically. Black. It's just a horrible word. Yeah, yeah. I get I it. I like now. where you're almost supposed to go. Like that's what ruined it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and check it out. Oh, there, there's like there you go. Right. That's, that, that's what that, I'm seeing. That's what I'm seeing. That's what's <laughs> pissing me off. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Black. It's fucking horrible. Yeah. No wonder people deny it. Black, it's a color you put on a crayon. Black. If look at look at what I look like when I say black. Black. It's yeah. like I'm vomiting. Yeah. Black. You can spit and say black. See? Black. Okay. Black. 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 Yeah. Now watch me do white. White. Yeah. I smile as yeah. soon as I say white. Yeah. No wonder I keep it. I'm I'm white. I'm white. Yeah. It you're smiling. Yeah. You're using your smiling muscles. Right. It takes 14. White. White. Black. See, see, you see yeah. how you look? Yeah. Black. Yeah. Black black i never thought about it's it. almost derogatory black so you're no going wonder. with nubian but what nubian. about african-american i don't mind african i'm really african so i, I can know. say i say nigerian specifically so it adds some exotic shit to yeah, it yeah yeah i go i'm nigerian because yeah. it's specific i'm congolese i'm ethiopian congolese i like that oh it's amazing but listen heavy place though heavy place yeah like nubian fuck it so african-americans from america don't deny their shit they'll go watch this I'm I'm Irish. I'm Swedish. I'm Nubian. Oh, Nubian. Nubian. Okay. Nubian, yeah. Yeah. My dad's Nubian. He's part Nubian. <laughs> yeah. Fucking amazing. I'm changing the language. What What's holding you back? What do you mean? What's holding me back? I don't know. Shitty managers. I don't fucking know. My agents are great. Like I said, innovative yeah. is the shit. What 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 did you do at Comedy Central today? Um, I just got weirded out. Oh, really? No, I Comedy. I had a meeting. And I was supposed to meet with a particular guy. He didn't come to the to the meeting. Oh, that's the worst. Where you have it like that's the guy you're supposed to meet. I was, and I'm supposed like, to, and I'm still gonna try and meet him. I I'm like bullshit. I'm like 
He's a good dude. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just, I just sometimes, stand up wise, I'm where I need to be. But when it sometimes when it comes to pitching shit, I get insecure as fuck, man. Really? I just don't think I go. Are they gonna like this shit? Really? I'd get weirded out, man. I'm not gonna I'll lie. Give you, That's hey, what's holding me back because I have a lot of good ideas, but I get afraid to flesh them out. Well, here's the, here's the trick to that is what's that the they have no idea what they're gonna like one way or the other. They have a lot of open spots in their day, uh-huh. and they're like, "Let's bring a funny guy in and see what to, happens." To you try think, to you think so? Yeah, that's why they're 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 taking the meeting. They're yeah. like, they're basically it's a cry for help at all levels. You think it's a cry for help? Look at network television. Yeah, are you kidding me? It's like they're they're just hemorrhaging viewers. <laughs> they don't even know how to. No, they're like, we don't know where anyone's watching anything. <laughs> It's in a way, it's kind of cool. It's it's great. It's great. Are you kidding me? You, you just you, walk you in. You throw the power out of their hands. Here's your confidence. Like I'll guarantee people will watch your network with this. Oh, there it is. Well, I am. I have to admit, though, I am better at my meetings because I'm I'm more straight to the point. I'm more honest, not in a bad way, not in, but I'm just more to the point, and I kind of know what I want, and I kind of ask them the questions more. Yeah. And I'm a little smarter from yeah. me, and just I'm like an old whore, yeah. an old prostitute. <laughs> That I'm trying to, you know, when you talk to the young, the young hoes, you're yeah, like this. Yeah. Listen, baby, all you gotta do, go in there, get your ass, suck the dick, and get out and get your money, baby. I'm yeah. telling you, no, don't, you don't want to waste money. too much time. Yeah, yeah. You give me the money. I'm like an old, I'm like an old prostitute. Yeah, yeah prostitute. you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I don't want to be a woulda, coulda, shoulda, man. That a little, that like, freaks me out a little bit. I don't think you are. You seem to have been. You've tried to do everything you want. I'm, <laughs> You know, I like how you're Mayweathering me right now. You're just jamming, uh, and I'm like, fuck, you got me. Oh, uh, fuck, you got me. You don't have knockout punches. The weird thing is you don't have knockout punches, but you're, you're opening up, you you're, you're opening up you the bottom of my yeah. eye a little bit. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, you yeah, motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, By damn. the time we're done, you're like, I'm quitting. <laughs> I give up throwing the towel. You, That was good. I didn't even mean to. That's no, the weird thing with no. you. It just happened so naturally. It's so na- <laughs> Another jam. <laughs> You're getting a lot of points from body punches, not well, knockout. You, but you laugh at it. I love because it's fucking oh, hysterical. Man. Because no matter what you do to me yeah. on this show, I it's the it it it's better than I'd rather have Mark Marin fuck with me on his show than you not invite me here. Yeah. Well, are you kidding me? Because you don't you know what you try to be mean, but I see right through that shit. I know that's, that's I've been why, through your pain, man. That's why I like you. Like a lot yeah. of people think I'm really mean and I'm like, they don't know me. And that's no. like, I thought about that the other day because I think it's like a bit I'm working on. It's like, like I'm, I'm an asshole, but I'm, but I'm really a nice guy. I so like, that. so anyone who thinks I'm an asshole, like they should. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that, then I'll, that's one person I'll have to deal with. <laughs> that's, how, that's how it weeds out your face. Exactly. It's like, oh, I'm not going to talk yeah, to him. Yeah, good. Good, good. Beat it. It's like, if you can Adam. see my heart, good. Here we go. <laughs> Yeah, I know exactly who could see it. I know exactly. Right. And you know. Yeah, there are dudes that are sort of like, I'm not going to put up with They're anything. They're stoic. Like pretend like, asshole. Please, please, pretend pre- asshole. You're pretending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to hear that shit. Yeah. And then you offer me coffee. You're you're hospitable in your house. Shit like that. I So I don't want to play. I don't want to hear that shit. You know, I think you cook for people too if you I cook. I have. I knew it. I fucking John, knew it. Some people come over, they don't forget to eat. You got what about us, man? I don't know. I just ate all the thing. I ate all the papaya. There's no. I don't have any good snacks right you now. You have any good snacks? Mm-mm. I had some cereal. Yeah, see what kind of cereal you fuck with? Puffins. P- the fucking bird? Ugh. What do you mean? You like puffins? What That's you- the bird. That's the wannabe toucan Sam. I what know the what fuck? it is. Get the Fruit Loops, Duke. No. Get the we- raisin bran crunch. No. 
puffins are dry. Are as you? Shit. Let me ask you a question. Are you a fucking grown up? Yeah. That's why I'm asking you to get me some fucking cereal. Some Fruit Loops. Uh, get me some goddamn Fruit Loops, man. What the fuck? That's what you do. Fruit Loops. You know, that's what you do as a grown-up. You eat cereal when the fuck you want, and you don't have to wait for your parents to tell you. No, I know, but I eat good cereal. How healthy. Puffins? They're just like, they're like Captain... They're Cl- crunchy. They're, I know, there's those little corn crunch... P- pillows, yeah. They're like little pillows. Yeah. That shit is whack, dude. All right. It's whack. It's, but it's not, it's not as bad Puffins? as... Puffins? What do you want me to eat? Raisin Bran Crunch. Not I Raisin ma- Bran. No, I can make Raisin Bran. I got Bran Flakes, no, and no. I got raisins. Raisin Bran right. Crunch. Uh, uh, you know what else is good? Ooh. Life. Cinnamon Life. Cinnamon? Why can't you just go with the original nah, Life? that's just whack. Cinnamon Life is tight. I used to eat Cocoa Pebbles when I was Not a bad. kid. Cocoa Pebbles is good. Cocoa Pebbles <laughs> is good. Fruity Cocoa Pebbles. That's I don't like the sh- Fruity Pebbles. No? No, I got a problem with it. If it gets soggy. Oof. Yeah. See, I like a little milk. Keep the shit top of top crunchy. Yeah. And then once it gets soggy, I toss it out. I like uh, soggy puffins. Fucking. Ugh. <laughs> Soggy right. puffins. We, we, that think, sounds like that sounds like old nasty I think, ass. I think we've covered it all. Did we cover it all? Yeah. So yeah. why why are you here? I'm here because you said I could come and promote my new hour special that I filmed. I shot. Okay, whatever you want to say. I yeah. shot in Chicago at the Vic. No, oh. they they did a bunch of those at the Vic. I decided to go with Rooftop Comedy, Matt Schuler and crew. Yeah, giving them credit, Matt Schuler and crew. Um, Rooftop. It, it was at Second City at Up. Oh, Up's good. Second City. That's good. You know, I had a They're job. They're not going to do it anymore. It's I know. Over. JB, who is awesome, JB said they were not going to do any more comedies anymore, which is sad. They good sh- room. I never got to play it. Great room. I used to play. I did mind the Vic. I'm happy. Showtime's doing good ass shit, man. Yeah. They're doing good stuff. And yeah. you know what? You need to be on there where people can just pick your shit out and watch it. That's right. And it's good. It's good they still need stuff. And I think. <laughs> I need an eight count. Are you sure you want to still be in this fight? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I still want to be in this fight. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was a good one, Mark. Fuck. I love it. I don't shit. even know why I'm so good at it with you. You're I'm not, so, not very good at it. That's why I need to come more often. Okay. Not not a, not not on some crazy shit, but just All right, so I'm not I'm an interesting dude to you. You know this. I'm I, know, your I have man. a good I have a good time. You have let's, a good time with me, let's sir. Not go crazy. Interesting. Anything you talk about, I can talk about with you. Doesn't matter. Well, I know we talk about country music. Let's save that. Let's save that one. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, okay. uh, you want some puffins? Uh, fuck that. I want maybe dry puffins. All right. Bye. All right. Peace. Ah, oh, yes. Godfried and Marin. That the the fun sparring, funny, kind of almost crying engagement. That we do. Uh, again, Regular Black is uh, airing on Showtime On Demand and on Showtime in general, I believe. Werner Herzog is here. I was thrilled to talk to him. He's one of those guys who I've seen a lot of his movies, but I obviously haven't seen all of his movies. And, and there's always some part of me that thinks I should see everything or listen to everything or read everything that my guests have written or shot or done or recorded. But it never matters. Uh, I knew what I wanted to uh, to talk to him about in a way. I just wanted to talk to him about things. It was an exciting honor to meet Werner Herzog. So this is me and Werner. His new uh, documentary is called Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World. It's in theaters and on demand this Friday, August 19th. 
what is the last thing that you finished reading? An obscure historian, Greek antiquity. Yeah. Diodorus Siculus. So it's a, an actual Greek historian from BC. Yes. And when you read something like that, outside of the dates and information, uh, what do you glean from it? Oh, in this case, uh, I would say it's um, a soap opera story. Yeah. About the father of Alexander the Great, yeah. Philip II of Macedon. Uh-huh. And uh, Diodorus Siculus is a fairly unintelligent writer, more an encyclopedist. Uh-huh. But all of a sudden, when it comes to the father of Alexander the Great, he's brilliant and wild and uh-huh. unbelievable. Apparently, uh, Diodorus Siculus uh, had access to sources that others didn't have in antiquity. Right. So he got the inside information. <laughs> well, we never know exactly. Is it really inside information? How much is made up? How much is... Uh, sort of slightly um, inclination into propaganda. You you don't know. Right. But what do you find is, uh, I mean, when you think, because if, if even watching the, the new movie, that it, it seems that sometimes you're, you really kind of focus on the, the sort of vulnerability of humans and their, their needs and desires and, and where that takes them. So when you look at something like, like a propagandist or, or, or somebody that's, you know, perhaps, you know, switching history around. What do you think creates that dynamic? Do you think he was working for the state or do you think he was... No, your- no, no. It's, uh, history is always a, a question of perception. Uh-huh. So you, when, whenever you read history, any kind of history, uh, it is always perception. Right. It, there's always a a tendency unbeknownst or beknownst to the writer. Right. Um, and you have to read the historical context and you have to read the mood of the time and you have to understand the argument within the context of, of the time. Right. So and then it becomes fascinating. Right. Because <laughs> you have the whole world. You can look at the whole world of what's happening. You have the full context. Um, you will never have the full context. That's an illusion. <laughs> but you can get snippets of it. Well, when I was watching Lo and Behold, this, the, the new documentary, they, I, I, it was not a good night for me. Uh, you know, I enjoyed the movie, but I didn't sleep well. I had dreams of spiders for some reason. I don't know why, but I found myself terrified at the end of it and that I, I should be doing something to... Uh, to, to that, that's the odd thing at the end of that film is that like I should be doing something to protect what... There's no, there's no way out, really. Yes, of course there is. Why are you so negative? Sounding so doomed. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Is it? Yes, of course. So and do I not show some of the glories of the internet, for example? Oh no, yeah, no, it's, it's great. So, yeah, yeah. But what I found the, the most glorious was the, the the passion of these of these scientists and these uh, researchers and even the security analysts that you know the challenge of now managing the the monster or or the or the beautiful thing however you want to look at it is is really going to be the the humanity's work is going to be managing this monster 
you see that the internet is not good or evil right nor is electricity right it doesn't have qualities beyond the technical qualities right although if we strap you onto an electric chair yeah and execute you you better recalibrate your opinion a few minutes before we do that <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. right so in the hands yeah. of humans this uh this amazing force can go either way yeah well humans are good or evil they are and and uh, much worse so m much of the time they are very stupid mm -hmm. and there's a certain danger <laughs> Stupid and evil are not mutually exclusive in any way. Like yeah. a lot of the very uh, classic stupid evil people that have done great damage in their yeah. stupidity. You know, I sorry that I would like to tell you a dream because Please. I hardly ever dream. When hardly, did it happen? Not long ago, but uh, I dream maybe once in a year. Really? And I was uh, running in a street in Mexico somehow pursued by God knows what. And at an intersection, I bump into a donkey uh, that has some sort of a load packed on it. And I'm knocked down and somebody, a priest picks me up and shakes me and screams at me, do you believe in the forces of evil? Do you renounce uh, Satan himself and and somehow perplexed as I was I said I do not believe in uh, in the devil I only believe in stupidity that was what I dreamt so <laughs> you better figure that one out <laughs> Is that, that, that seems like a good short film <laughs> it's almost do you, did you grow up with religion uh, no not at all? Well, I had a deeply religious phase in my adolescence, and I converted to Catholicism, which didn't last very long. How but old? I was a very 13, 14. What compelled you? That's too complex to discuss it here, but uh, it is a fact that I had a very intense, dramatic uh, religious phase that, in, in a way, uh, threatened to break the family apart, which uh, was a family of militant atheists. Huh. Yeah. Do, 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 when you look back on it, do you think it, maybe that was the reason you did it? Was no, to find no, independence? No, no, no. no? I, had, I was independent uh, mm -hmm. since I started to think independently, even before that. Yeah. Because uh, my brothers and I grew up uh, in an environment where there were no fathers. so <clears throat> Because of the to, war? Yes, we had to take care of ourselves. We had to shape our destiny. We understood it. We have to be self-reliant. So, so what year was that? What year were you born? 1942, in the middle of the Second World War. Oh, my God. And my very first uh, reminiscences are... Um, connected to the very end of the war like uh like very visually like like sounds and destruction <clears throat> uh, actually no destruction i didn't see destruction because my mother fled to the mountains mm -hmm. to the most remote valley uh, in the alps 
because where I was born, uh, there was a carpet uh, bombardment, and uh, we were really in danger. So my mother fled. Oh, that was good. And um, I do remember, however, that she ripped my older brother and me out of our beds in the middle of the night and carried us and it was cold and she wrapped us into blankets and she said children boys i i had to wake you up you have to see this and at the end of the valley very far in the distance the horizon was completely in the middle of the night dark night the horizon was pulsing in red and orange the entire horizon and she says boys you have to see this the city of Rosenheim is burning and the city of Rosenheim 30 miles away at least was leveled completely yes like uh, pretty much every major city in uh, in Germany 720 cities were completely leveled but leveled the way ground zero looked like yeah and that was only a tiny fraction of New York City. Yeah, and it just and rubble. A few, a very few cities were not actually bombed by virtue of some statistical errors. I think. Oh, really? <laughs> you think <laughs> they were not? They didn't need to be bombed. Do you mean? No, they were forgotten, maybe, or uh, they didn't. <laughs> Somebody was not keeping track of what had been destroyed and what was still uh, out there. Yeah. So your father died in the war? No. Uh, he was uh, in captivity and then right after the, well, very f soon after the war, divorced. Mm. When did you move back into uh, a city? Uh, when it was time to go to high school. That means age uh, 11. Uh-huh. And, and when you got back, which city did you go back to? Munich, where I was born. So it was, how long did it take for them to reconstruct that city? Was it some of it life? is still, some of it is still filling up. There are still gaps uh, that are filling up. But I would say, basically, by the time of the Munich Olympics were held, 1972, uh, they utilized some of the mountains that were built up as uh, part of the Olympic landscape. Yeah. And these mountains were, is, uh, I mean, gi gigantic amounts of uh, cubic feet. Of It was all rubble. Really? And it was flat, but now you do have, we call it Schuttberge, the, the debris mountains. <laughs> right. In the, in, in now they're overgrown with uh, grass and trees, and they look like very normal landscape, but uh, uh, archaeologists of the future in a thousand years will dig into it, and they will find millions and millions of, of cubic uh, feet, billions of cubic feet of uh, rubble. Rubble and pieces of history. Whatever, yes. So when you knew that, when did you start, you know, thinking, you know, creatively in, in terms of like wanting to pursue film or wanting to pursue a life of art? That was the same time I converted to Catholicism. I started to travel on foot. I knew I was going to be a poet, a filmmaker, and... Um, 13. 14, I would say. Yeah. 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 And then things, it was all in a very short span of time. And somehow I'm still carried by it. 
until today. By the 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 purpose of it, by the no accepting, uh, recognizing my fate. Uh huh. That as a that that is what you are. A yes, filmmaker. it sounds well. It sounds a little bit pathetic. You better uh, grab this, touch this term, uh, accepting or understanding your fate. You better touch it only with a pair of pliers. <laughs> but I think you you know what I mean. I do. Yeah, I do. Is that that you understood what you are here to do? What I yes, giving and, meaning to my life yes. in an otherwise uh, meaningless. And aimless universe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it, it, so it's it's almost like uh, it, it is saving your life on some level. No, no, of course no. not. Okay. Uh, my life was given to me uh, by some strange coincidence, statistically improbable, but I'm now I'm here. <laughs> so you, I, I bet I had to figure out what to do with it. But do you, I, I, I mean, because if I, when I watch the documentaries and some of the feature films, I, it, you know, these, they're challenging because they're, they're amazingly human and they're completely compelling, but, uh, but sometimes um, dark, obviously, and sometimes, you know, very, um, there's a vulnerability to them that, that, that is disturbing. Like when, if, if I think of, of Grizzly Man, and I even watched, I watched uh, Even Dwarf Started Small recently that you, you know that it's a wild one a radical one it is yeah. because it you know it's a very challenging thing when you watch even dwarves were small to not uh laugh a lot of course it has a very dark humor in, in it very yeah. black humor and many of my films by the way have a lot of humor in it oh no yeah definitely the, the, I, I feel that you have a great sense of timing and a great sense of uh, of yeah. where to cut you know, sometimes right, you yeah. let things hang for a minute yeah. you know, in the documentaries or, all the time. <clears throat> or even poking fun at the internet and the use of the internet. In Lo and Behold, yeah. I show Buddhist monks With uh, next to at the skyline and they're all <laughs> tweeting. <laughs> so in my commentary, of course, <laughs> makes it a very hilarious event. Right, yes. And, and you, I know how to how to deal with the internet in a way. And strangely enough, my my humor on the internet has quite often become viral. I was asked in a podcast uh, for the first time when I showed Lo and Behold at Sundance yeah. and became a, a phenomenal success there. And I was in a podcast and I asked, yeah, but, but I have my laptop open, but I don't see you. And I was instructed, well, you don't see me uh, like in a Skype conversation right. because this is a podcast. Right. It's only like radio. <laughs> and I said, but how do you, do I access? And they gave me an address. Right. You just uh, type in this access, uh, uh, this um, keyword, and then Google us. And now comes this. Yeah. Of course, my kind of joke. Yeah. I asked, how for heaven's sake do I hack into Google? <laughs> <laughs> they were screaming. <laughs> and uh, so I think you understand my type of humor. No, I do. I, I, I've, I've watched a, a lot of the movies, and, and I think that, that it sometimes it relieves a moment. There are moments in this that are, are humorous, but they're also powerful. You know, when you ask that guy if he loved his robot, 
I mean, yes, and he does. He does. <laughs> he, he Robot re- Eight. He really loves Robot Eight. They all, they all love Robot Eight. Yeah, it seems to be a, 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 yeah. something that you explore, you know, a lot. That we're vulnerable, and and sometimes life, you know, gets away from us in certain ways, and 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 being human is, uh, is fragile. Yeah. Right. And yet. Uh, uh, what they are doing is a monumental achievement yes. of, of human ingenuity. I know, but it's with something... certain dangers, of course. A lot, but, of, but right. it it is uh, it is a, a very momentous kind of revolution, as momentous as, for example, the introduction of fire. Yes, for early humans. Yes. Uh, or as the introduction of electricity. That's a huge thing. Yes. It's much bigger than, let's say, uh, printing books, yes. Gutenberg, Bible, and so on. Right. From then. It's much bigger than all this. And it's bigger than the discovery of uh, of America by Columbus. Yes. You see, and, and that's why the, the logbook that you find at UCLA... The, which yeah. uh, actually did the very first server-to-server yeah, connection yeah. Uh, between UCLA and Stanford. And the very first message that was sent across right. should be log in. Yeah, and but they spelled L. Oh. As L arrived, they asked via telephone, yes, yep, L has arrived. Yeah. Has the O arrived? Yep, O has arrived. When they typed in G, the computer crashed. <laughs> so it's just low. So, low, yes. And it's, uh, as uh, Leonard Kleinrock, the pioneer, yeah. tells us, this was a very auspicious sort of label all of a sudden. Low, like in low and behold. Right. And they didn't even, they had no clue how momentous uh, that moment was. And he knows it was more momentous. This tiny little uh, entry in their logbook had more significance than uh, Columbus's uh, logbook on the ship. This morning we spotted land. Yes. It's bigger than that. I think it is. And I guess maybe because it's a good documentary, I'm bringing a lot of my own cynicism to you know to everything that's being discussed that you know i think that that's what's compelling about a, a film like that is that like i can't not think of darkness winning ultimately like and when they talk about like when when are we going to be able to walk yeah in- but you don't look like like a like a guy i mean i see you you sit opposite to me you don't look like being driven by dark forces no i'm sure you love a good steak once in a while i had one the other night okay i yeah. read your face correctly yes i i am occasionally a steak eater yes <laughs> <laughs> and but, your laughter isn't fiendish. <laughs> no, no. I think, <laughs> I, I think I'm speaking out of fear. I don't think I'm necessarily a dark guy. But when I hear these guys, uh, you know, the, the guy in the planetarium saying like, you know, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about a world where this thing goes wrong. I don't even want to entertain that thought right now. We should. Of course. We should, of course, because uh, we can take uh, very easy precautions uh, individually. For example, there's constant talk we should get rid of cash money and we should uh, introduce uh, virtual reality, uh, virtual um, uh, currency like bitcoins, or yeah. we should only pay uh, electronically. Yeah. No, 
because if the internet is down, you cannot buy your hamburger at the joint down at the corner. No, and I you cannot flush your toilet anymore, <laughs> and you cannot go in the elevator to the 70th floor in New York City, and you have no connectivity, you have no uh, radio, no telephone, yeah. nothing. Right. So uh, we better uh, provide ourselves with a, at least a small stash of dollar bills, uh -huh. small denominations, because with a hundred dollar bill, you still can buy a hamburger, mm -hmm. but they wouldn't have the change to give you back. So you better have one dollar bills, five, ten, twenty dollar bills. I know, but in the movie, it seems like, you know, within two or three days, there's not going to be any hamburgers either. That <laughs> could actually be, yes. Uh, like, and, you know, within, no matter what you do to safeguard yourself, that within a week or two, uh, it, it's going to be ugly. Yes, but uh, now let's, on the technical level, let's try and find uh, certain safeguards to reinstall things, or at least regionally, uh, decentralize decentralize the, yeah. the entire system so that only certain parts are going to be affected, like with the electrical grid. If something is, uh, uh, some generation generator station is blasting away, uh, you reroute your currency and and uh, in a similar way you can do so with the internet there's not much uh, thought going into it i'm sure that uh, for example secret services are very much interested in that so when you make a film like that you, you don't find yourself uh, feeling bleak no not at all it's it's a phenomenal phenomenal thing to to look at it and to conceptualize and to see things that have nobody has even predicted 15 years ago and they're happening now do you believe and they're changing our behavior and yes. they're changing uh, our uh, let's say at least the organization of technical civilizations yes so the amish couldn't care less Right. But they have a, a very good survival rate if everything goes down because they are self, self-reliant yes. uh, homestead farmers. Yes, and they don't even need electricity. Right, but but what about the rest of us? <laughs> we will have a harder time, and we better look. We better look at what we are doing. You can go out for hunting and and foraging, but the park in. Los Angeles is in downtown Los Angeles is very small and you've got about uh, maybe 50 squirrels for 15 million people who live around there. A few coyotes. You got to learn how A to few, eat coyotes. Yes, you have to eat the coyote, <laughs> but they are not enough for 15 million. Okay. So that's that's yeah. a problem. Yeah, it is a problem. But I yeah, but like I said, I thought it was a a, a beautiful movie that weighed all this stuff it pretty is. well. Yes, it, it is. is. <laughs> it definitely Damn it, is. It, it is. Like the what was being talked about at the end, which I sort of get obsessed about, is that like at the beginning of this conversation where we were talking about you taking a an ancient Greek historian and putting it into context to fully understand the possibilities of the times that he is trying to to yeah. to talk about. And and that one of the things that I I've said before about about the internet is that eventually you may have a generation of kids if they're not there now who will just say you know like adolf hitler oh he's the guy with the mustache and that's all they know so in in terms of contextualizing and honoring history and actually having like they were talking about at the end how do you be continue to inspire kids to or, or young people 
to engage your imagination and contextualize what has happened before them. It has to come from them. I cannot play the principle no, I know for that. all of us. Uh, but, but you're uh, so, so be careful. Uh, no, and, and I do not uh, think that uh, young people uh, will eventually ask the essential questions. Why are we here? What are we doing here? How do we conduct our lives? How do we uh, touch each other? How do we cook for each other? How do we uh, raise children? You believe they will continue to ask those questions? Yes, it, uh, it's inevitable. Sure, we are humans. Let's face it. But that one—it's it's a wild—it's a wild time of trans transition. So that's how you see it. That, that we're yes. in a transition. Yes, Th this and, is not. We the... do not. We do not know how to how to deal with the instrument well enough. You see, in the 50s, there was this obsession of cars. Yeah. Elvis in his car, in this, yeah. this big Buick or whatever it was, and uh, drive-in restaurants. And yeah. you could do, in Las Vegas, still I think you can do a drive-in drive wedding. Yeah. And I have seen a sign in Las Vegas, not long ago, where there was an advertisement, <laughs> drive Drive by divorce. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you see, but it, yeah. this this kind of obsession with cars yes. is a little bit outdated, and right. we are rethinking our cars, and we are trying to have cars that uh, have a much lower emission of. Uh, uh, of gases, right. of toxic gases, yeah, or right. we are moving into electric cars. So uh, we, we, we have started to understand how to use this tool. I get it. No, I, I understand. And there's no, no drive by divorce anymore. Right. Yeah. No. It's a, you got to you got to do it the old fashioned way. But it, but all, all those technologies require human engagement on a, on a very organic level. That you, you know now there there are so many. And obviously you're not a scientist. But I mean I understand that we're adapting to a new world and a new technology. Yeah. But so much of it is has nothing to do with us in the sense of we don't know anything. No. It all has to do with us. Uh, for example, uh, GPS system yes. has to do with fundamental insights into movement and time. Mm -hmm. uh, without the uh, theory of relativity by Einstein, we could not have a GPS system. That's right. You see, yes. and and it's uh, it it is not visible for us, and it is not palpable. But we are doing it because we had Einstein. Yes. And and when you pay your grocery at the cash register, you do not uh, have to go into the mathematical principles that rule the cash register calculation no, yeah. machine. You don't need to do that. Yes. And yet, yeah. it's it's a normal thing. You yes. Uh, you buy certain things. And yes. Um, you pay a certain amount, yeah. and it has been calculated. Yeah. How it was calculated is uninteresting now. Yes, that's true. Okay. It has disappeared. Okay. I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, I just get nervous when you know you have the darker elements that you explore. I thought the, the security analyst guy was great, the one that was not able to give you a lot of information. Yes. But I thought that was very fascinating that, you know, 
that that even securing what is happening, you know, from yeah. another human being yes. or maybe a group of human beings, you have to identify patterns. You have to live in this world, right? Where where patterns become suspect and then track patterns. I thought that was all, uh, you know, very fascinating. It is, and and of course, uh, it comes right at the time, at the right time for discussion when everybody was into uh, the thing of hacking yeah. uh, the democratic convention emails sure. yes uh, okay. and there were machinations against bernie yeah. sanders and so number one uh, it's not really clear whether it was any of the russians who in the kgb or the modern form of the kgb would call himself cozy bear yeah, yeah. nor nor has the NSA or the CIA ever confirmed it. They yeah. keep ominously silent. At the same time, we should understand where the massive, monumental siphoning of, of knowledge, of technologies, of science, of uh, details, secrets of uh, manufacturings is taking place. Yeah. It's, not, it's not an individual hacker. It's right. not... The yeah. Russians, I mean, everybody does yeah, it. Sure. America sh certainly yes. does it. But there's one player out there that uh, siphons off trillions of dollars of, of worth, of values. Yeah. And they are still out there and they are still doing it. Yeah. So You name the name. I don't know the name. I know it and everybody knows it. Yeah. Name horse and rider. Just take a guess among the countries that is siphoning off no trillions of dollars trillions of dollars take Do a guess china uh, you pronounce it in a beautiful way we do not exactly know but we we should assume <laughs> so you may have come to a smart conclusion <laughs> and ask ask the professional hackers that guy was great in the movie. Mitnick. Mitnick. Yes, Kevin Mitnick. I love him. I love him too. Uh, and uh, and of course, uh, I was asked, yeah, why do you expose him in the film and give him a platform? Uh, hasn't he done damage? Actually, he hasn't done real damage because he never sold any of the goodies that yeah. he hacked. Yeah. He never did it for profit. He did it for trophies. I love that moment. And, and besides, we have to consider... This man has spent five years in federal prison, one year in in complete isolation. How old was he? Like twenty? He was uh, very he was young at the time. He was very young. I mean, he was yeah. nineteen, Ugh. and he was the most famous Hacker. and most wanted of all hackers. He was made an example of, and he has been brought to justice. Yes, and I I do believe in rehabilitation. Yes, of a criminal. And by the way, Mitnick today is running a, a security company that advises you, how do you protect your company from intrusions and hacking and stealing and siphoning off? You know, so he's good at that. Yeah. He's a very reliable uh, businessman now. And also the interesting thing in dealing with the human factor was yes. just how how much he knew had to do with his ability to coax information out of yes. people on a on yeah. a human level exactly. to get yeah. into he the would, yeah there, there were always better hackers i mean technically yeah. there were better ones but he was the one who could bamboozle you out of your wits 
Yeah, yeah. And you would give away secrets that you sure. would never give away. Yeah. He has it in 11 minutes flat. Yes. In 11 minutes, he gets uh, all the secret code of a new Motorola yeah. cell phone at yeah. the time. That's, a, a, that's a, an eternal human archetype, the smooth talker. <laughs> right? Yeah, no, he, he has, and he says it very well. He, he does have the gift yeah, of gap. Yeah, yeah. I like this expression. Now, when you make, it seems that your output of documentaries in the last decade or so has been a lot. And, you know, you, you make a lot of big feature films as well. What is more the passion? Is it just a different approach? Do you see them as equal? No, there's a slightly different approach, although everything is uh, is movies for me. Yeah. And when you poke into the question, I can give you a statistical Uh, answer yeah. at the moment I have four finished films all ready for release yeah. on the 19th of August it's lo and behold reveries of the connected world in Telluride very first days of September a new documentary um, on volcanoes a few days later a feature film Salt and Fire which I shot in Bolivia about a mysterious hostage taking Uh, and I also have a big uh, epic feature film out, uh, um, which is called Queen of the Desert. So two feature films ready for release, two documentaries ready for release. And my next projects are basically all at the moment feature film projects. But it doesn't really matter. Don't. Don't start to count and don't go into statistics. No, I was just wondering, like, in terms of your approach to them and what you can get out of them. Are the are the feature films, are they your scripts, both of them? or are you just... Feature films, always my own scripts, with so, very rare exceptions. So when, when, like, just in the craft of doing both of them, what is the essential, you know, thrill or search when you write a film and direct a film and you have complete control or, or, or as opposed to when you are putting together footage of interactions. But I, I also write, of course, a, a documentary and right. I, I uh, somehow stylize them and I stage them. Yeah. Like, for example, the appearance of um, Buddhist monks yes. at the skyline yeah. of uh, Chicago and musing about have they all left For yeah. I mean the inhabitants, millions of inhabitants of Chicago, right. for a colony on Mars. Yeah, because it looks very lifeless. There's no movement, nothing around. But were they so just there? Or did you put they them were there? there? But no. I, by the way, if they had been just entering their their bus, yeah. I would have asked them, please, can you step out for my camera once more, and please do the tweeting that you did before. <laughs> so. That's the nature of my kind of documentaries. I do it for enhancement of a deeper truth. Yes. Something that's quite beautiful out there and uh, something that um, connects us to, to poetry. Yes. I like to take audiences, and I'm speaking now of documentaries, I take them uh, left and right, and I and I take them right into the into the landscape of sheer illumination and poetry. Yeah, the and poetry. you see, I I I claim the right of trespassing if I can take you, the audience, into the landscape of poetry. Yes, I do any form of trespassing easily 
for example, at the end of my film Cave of Forgotten Dreams, which is a film about a Paleolithic cave yeah. uh, recently discovered with cave paintings yes. of phenomenal beauty and quality made something like 32,000 years ago. And there's a postscript, and the postscript is about... Uh, mutant albino radioactive crocodiles yeah. <laughs> and I'm going completely wild and the audiences love it <laughs> and it has to do obviously it is connected to the film loosely it has to do with perception how did humans like us there were homo sapiens uh, how did they perceive their paintings how do we today in the 21st century perceive these paintings and how would a crocodile an albin albino crocodile in in a biotope nearby <laughs> near a nuclear reactor yeah. how do they when they escape and enter the cave see these paintings right. and by the way as crazy as it may sound yes. there's this biotope uh, for tourists with hundreds of crocodiles five of them escaped last winter well, at the beginning of winter, sure. there was a huge hunt with uh, <laughs> for the crocodiles. Uh, huge hunt, including <laughs> helicopters searching for them. Some somehow, some of them were found in a um, uh, in a harvested cornfield, in a frozen harvested cornfield, and one of them is still at large, unaccounted. <laughs> Unaccounted <laughs> of unaccounted so, crocodile. So my wildest fantasies are yeah. overtaken by sure. something real. Yeah, they, or yeah, or it's prophetic. But like the poetry, like I read some of the uh, the the book that you wrote in the early seventies uh, of Walking on Ice. Of Walking in Ice. In yeah, Ice. Yeah. Uh, and that was a a fairly astounding poetic achievement. That, that just the way you yeah. were, you know, engaging in in the life that you were that you were moving towards it obviously yeah. was in the wake of a, a of an ill friend but but it it was essentially poetry yes uh, you see it correctly it uh, was born out of a certain necessity not just uh, sitting down yes. in front of some empty paper and then starting to write poetry i was traveling on foot at the beginning of winter from munich to paris because my mentor an old woman lotte eisner was dying and I wouldn't allow her to die by just coming on foot. She yeah. wouldn't die. Actually, she was out of hospital when I arrived. And I know that uh, these written texts, like Of Walking in Ice yeah. and another book, um, which is very intense, it's called uh, Conquest of the Useless. They will outlive my films. Yeah? Why do you think that? Because it's a more direct sort of expression. You only right. uh, have uh, a pen and paper in between you and what you are in your essence. Yes. In filmmaking, there's always finances and organization and technical things, camera and mixing and yeah. psychology of actors, and you just name it. Um, so there are many layers in between. Yeah. And besides, I think... There's no one who writes prose as I do today. No, I think that's... There's no one. True. And and I say that uh, uh, probably in uh, complete misjudgment. <laughs> <But> <laughs> so Did, be it. <laughs> why don't you do more of it? 
I'm asking myself the same question and some of my best friends tell me so. But I'm doing, uh, I have too many things going on. I, As I said, I'm producing very fast yes. nowadays and I do things that I haven't done so much before. I, I'm acting, for example, yeah, yeah, we're including, we're including as a real villain in Jack Reacher. Yeah, yeah. Do you like it? Yes, because I was good. Yeah, yeah. I was really good in it, and yeah. I was paid handsomely to be as as frightening as it gets. And man, am I frightening! <laughs> but you did. Did you always? I mean, you took a long time to act, having having been working with actors forever. It comes easily to me now. Now, because, right? Yeah, sure. Why? Because you don't. You're not self conscious, or. No, I think it was always in me in a way, and I always un understood actors on a very deep level until I actually understood much of the technical side. There's, of course, there's craft. Yeah. There's craft in it. Sure. And you can see it when I recently uh, published a Masterclass as a company that does masterclasses, and I watched just to see how the format functioned. I watched uh, two actors, Dustin Hoffman and Kevin Spacey. Yeah. And Dustin Hoffman, more than anyone, speaks about craft. Yes. And very, very interesting. Yes. He's really good at explaining it. Yeah. And so you learned uh, from him? No, uh, because I saw it only very <laughs> oh, recently okay. and I did all my acting. Yeah, before? Without, <laughs> before I had seen. <laughs> yeah. But um, very interesting. Now I, now I want to watch it. It's worthwhile. Because uh, it is more dense, yeah. densely packed than any of the other masterclasses that are available out there. But with or without craft, having worked, you know, for years with with Kinski, who you were close with, and many other different actors, do you do agree that that some people just have a a natural thing for it? Right. I mean, there are some people that just belong in that profession. Yeah. But you should not uh, forget that Kinski was in a way um, extremely into rehearsing in his early times. Yes. He would improve his uh, pronunciation, his speech, his stage voice, his uh, uh, ductus of language. Uh -huh. I mean, he was, he was fanatically rehearsing yeah yeah and he always denied it now i'm uh, i'm a genius fallen out of the skies and nobody's <laughs> ever been like this before and <laughs> he would when you when you told him uh, klaus you were you were wonderful you were great he would scream no i was not wonderful i was not great i was monumental i was epochal <laughs> So that's his answer. But and do not forget, for example, um, great icons in acting like uh, um, Marilyn Monroe. Yes. It looks, when you look at uh, Some Like It Hot, as if it came with complete ease. And she, when you look at her professional life, was fanatically rehearsing and training herself. Yes. She was she was a, a workhorse of uh, of great of great intensity. And, yeah, and she worked with uh, the the method, it, right? It oh, forget about the method. <laughs> she only she only uh, uh, was 
declined after she she was with a method. Yes. And Marlon Brando only declined after he had been with a method. So I, I would say see it only with a great uh, uh, amount of doubt. Right. Uh, but uh, she was a real, real workhorse. It's a little bit like when you watch Olympics and you see the swimmers. Yeah. I mean, they right. swim with great grace yes. and fluidity. Yes. And at the same time, it's 10 years of, of training, uh, each day swimming at least 10 kilometers mm -hmm. in training. Yes. Not a single day right. without 10 kilometers. Right. You got to put the work in. Yes. Well, in Salt and Fire, you work with uh, Michael Shannon, who I like a lot. Oh, uh, he's the uh, best of his generation. Yeah. You like it, clearly it, the best. There's yeah. no one like him. Yeah, I love the man. Is it uh, do you, with him? What, what, do you see the work? I see uh, somebody of extraordinary gift mm. and an extraordinary presence. You see presence yes. on screen. In a way, it is inexplicable. There's yes. something mysterious about it. Mm -hmm. Um, because not everybody has it, obviously. It, some people yes, just Yes, some sort of charisma. Yeah. It comes from somewhere else, and we cannot even name it. Yes. That's what, and that fits into the poetry. Yes. So when you talk about um, Lottie Eisner, right? Yes. This was the early 70s, and you call her your mentor. So what did you, what did you learn from her early on that sort of guided you through your first films and whatnot? No, it's, it's not that she taught me anything. Okay. However, she put me in context with the silent movies of the Weimar epoch, Murnau, Fritz Lang. Yeah, and yeah. then later, it was her encouragement. Right. The encouragement from my first film on, she said, there's somebody out there who is extraordinary in, in her opinion. And uh, she was in very close contact with Fritz Lang, who lived in uh, Hollywood at yes. that time. Yes. And she wrote letters to him and she said, Fritz, you have always said after the barbarism of the Third Reich, of the Nazis, yes. there cannot be real, legitimate, great German cinema again. Never, ever. And she said to him, Fritz, you know what? I send you a print of a film by a young kid uh, who made a film, Signs of Life, his first feature film. And she sent him the print and Fritz Lang saw it and, and he said, Lotte, you are right. Yes, there's something coming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was encouragement. That's an amazing Because at the thing. time, nobody wanted to see my films, including Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Nobody wanted wanted to see the film. Why? Uh, it's I cannot explain it. I don't know why. Do you Sometimes think it, it happens. It took three, four, five years until the film all of a sudden had its breakthrough. And do you think that was because of of Germany, or do you think it was because of no, you? The the film was was so such a novelty in its raw in its raw approach uh -huh. and it was not at the horizon of anyone and sometimes it's very strange how these things happen i keep thinking about uh, franz kafka mm -hmm. uh, of his the the novel the castle i think during his lifetime 32 copies were sold right and we know that at least uh, he himself out of embarrassment bought 10 copies himself 
Right. So <laughs> you, you you never know. Now at the time, uh, it, did you was there a community? Like was were are you friends with Vim vendors and Fassbender? Were you did you were Not you really friends? We we respected each other very deeply. Yeah. But um, we knew our styles were different, our subjects were different. Yeah. Not like neorealism in Italy after the war, uh, where there was a common style right. and common social sort of agenda mm -hmm. in uh, in their movies. But the, the but it was considered uh, a movement in a way, right? Or was it considered German new cinema? Or? Yeah, let's let's not argue whether it was a movement. No, or no, not. no. Some some sort of a renaissance. But you were around each other. You were in 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 the same world. Yes, uh, but different. And and we understood we would be perceived as a as a movement. Yeah. Which none of us liked. Sure. Right. <laughs> Did you like their movies? Uh, not all of them, but yes, sure. Uh, uh, there are very, very fine movies from that time. And you know, when I did Akiri, The Wrath of God, yes. I took eight prints. I mean, 35 millimeter prints. They yes. are ugly to carry and heavy. I took them to Peru. Yeah. And I rented a theater and I showed them for free. Yeah. And it was phenomenal success. So many people were excited about them. Three of the films were films by Fassbinder, for example. Mm -hmm. And Fassbinder even didn't know that I took them. And only a year and a half later, he said, well, Werner, what is that? You came to my office and you saw three prints sitting there in the corner. And you were the one who took them. You were the one. Confess. <laughs> I said, Rainer Werner, yes, I confess. I took them. I showed him. And, and you know what? He, he, he just came at me with this intimidating look. And then he stretched his arms and hugged me very hard. And that was it. Oh, that's great. So. He was, yeah. You took them. <laughs> yes, of course I took them because they were very, very fine movies and they had to be shown. Which movies? Uh, I don't really recall, but one was, I think, his second film he made, Katzelmacher. Mm -hmm. A very, very interesting film. Well, they, well we began to talk about uh, even Dwarf Started Small, which was, you know, uh, you said darkly funny, which it was, just right, right away. Yeah. What when when because I was trying to look for something in that film that that you know was a portal into something that lasted your entire creative vision. Do you see that in that movie? Do you do you see the beginning of something that you have continued to try to resolve or or incorporate? No, I I don't have a real agenda. However, I know that uh, I do have a coherent worldview. Yeah. And uh, this film, Lo and Behold, yes. is essentially somehow within my worldview and within my uh, curiosities to expand my worldview. Yes. And uh, when, you, when you see the film, you would, without having any credits, you would notice very quickly this is a film by by me. Of course, as soon as you hear you talk, <laughs> and, and, and even if it were only in written <laughs> captions, you would you would get the message. But I guess what I, I guess what I saw was that by using dwarves and by using little people, that there was a built-in vulnerability to what was essentially a, a fairly harrowing story. 
they do not appear uh, as midgets or as dwarfs right. in the film because the entire world is only little people. Yeah, right. Whereas right. whereas the, the Cadillac that drives by or the motorcycle or the chairs yes. or the nuptial bed yes. are of size for us. But all of a sudden, all these daily tools uh, of everyday life become like monsters. Yes. All of a sudden, all these goodies become monstrous. Right. So that's that that kind of moves they, through. They, they are they are the regular size. All the the chair, the motorcycle, everything looks like a monster. All of a sudden, right. And when when you did the volcano, when you went up to the the first volcano movie, you're releasing another volcano movie. Well, I'm just finishing a film into the inferno. Yes. Which will be shown uh, in three weeks from now. And what was the one that I watched? Telluride, uh, La Souffrière, about a film about a volcano that was about to explode oh, yeah, in that, the Caribbean. Right. And I went there because I was fascinated by learning that uh, uh, there were very, very dramatic, quick evacuations of the entire island. Yeah. 75,000 people. And one single poor farmer who lived at the slope of the volcano refused to be evacuated. The guy with the cat. Yes. Yeah. And we had to wake him up while yeah. we started filming. <laughs> and was, deeply philosophical, a yes. very poor uh, black farmer who lived on the slope of the volcano. And we knew it would explode with the force of six, seven, eight atomic bombs, Hiroshima size. But so, you knew you might be there for that too. Uh in a way, yes, but I was somehow prudent. No, it, that was the only one or two times in my uh, films, in my work, in my working life, I took some sort of blind lottery. Otherwise, I'm a very, very prudent, safety, security-oriented person. Yeah. And I can read the difficulties and I can read the dangers yes. very, very well, well, better than others. However... The moment we were done filming, we would flee yeah. as far as, as fast and as far as we could. And we went up on the volcano a second time, but only because of a, a bizarre uh, coincidence. One of the two cinematographers, Ed Lockman, a wonderful, great uh, f uh, cinematographer in the industry, he lost his glasses. Right up on the volcano yeah. and I said Edward you are so helpless down there and we can't get you any glasses you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna return up there and I'm finding them and I said give me your camera and he said now I'll come with you and Schmidt Reitwein the other cinematographer also came along and once we had reached the summit, it was completely changed. It was plowed over and the and fissure had opened miles deep and toxic gases coming, protruding from it. So uh, there was no way to find his glasses. But we kept on filming for a while and then <laughs> fled again. <laughs> and in, uh, do you... The, I got to ask you a couple questions before I... I specific ones that I, before I forget them. In Grizzly Man, which was primarily assembling, yeah. right? There's a no half the film is shot by me, right? And then, oh, that's 50%. right. And then you had a lot of his and stuff, his uh, yeah. Timothy Treadwell's footage. Yes, there's a beat in there that I think changed, like that to me was one of the best moments in film for me, because it, and I think you must have been aware of it. That, of course, you were, but 
there was that moment where you sort of discuss how these animals are not, they don't have personalities per se, that they're wild animals. Not anthropomorphic. Right, that was sort it. Sort of. And uh, then and then quickly qualities uh, and not the Disney not the Disney world qualities that's right. as being fluffy little creatures right. uh, that you can cuddle right. and sing sing a song to them. Yeah, and then there was at some point I think shortly after where you cut to the face of the bear that probably killed him. Yes. And it was impossible as a viewer not to project evil. That there, that because you had established that, you know, you can't, and you knew it. I knew it logically. You yeah. can't anthropomorphize. But when I did see that bear's face, my brain could not. It wrestled with it. I'm like, but that's- but uh, do not forget my commentary. In all the faces of all bears that I encountered, I do not see any sympathy. I do not see any. Uh, um, I don't remember exactly. Yeah. There's only the monumental indifference. Maybe the only uh, interest is interest in food. Yeah, yeah. No affinity, no affection. Right. right. No uh, hostility. Right. It's just monumental indifference. Yeah. And it's, that's what you see in the face of the bear. I put it in the right context. You did, yes. I want to talk about the PSA that you did. <laughs> Because that that documentary is brutal. The texting and driving. Yes, I don't know how I, I like. That's a. I, I think that's a great little film. It is. Uh, I have no doubt, and I can quantify it. Millions of people saw it on YouTube. Yes, and it's way too long for YouTube. YouTube yeah. is made for the sixty seconds cat videos. Yes, crazy cats. Yeah, or anything that's over eight minutes long is prohibitive. Yeah, and here millions and millions saw it, and it has triggered legislation in various states of the United States, and it uh, is being shown now on forty thousand high schools across the United States. And I think, I think maybe I'm wrong, but I think it has become a mandatory viewing for those kids who do that driving test, driver's, driver's driving's license in high school. And many, of course, do it like that. So that and, could be and your- it has had a, an enormous, enormous effect. And people tell me, you must have sa- saved many, many lives. Instinctively, I know, yes, I did, but you cannot quantify it. You can quantify only events. You see, you can quantify accidents. You can quantify fatalities, but you cannot quantify events uh, that did not take place. Right. You cannot quantify how many times did you miss the woman of your life because she left the plaza 60 seconds before you arrived. <laughs> so you cannot quantify it. Right. However, there's an indirect way to, to see the effect, and that's uh, the, the statistical curve mm-hmm. that has altered its direction, Do you, it, coinciding, that, coinciding with the release of this YouTube video. It's it's interesting because on some level, the way you talk about it, it could be one of the most important films you've ever made. It depends on what you call important. In <laughs> well, practical terms, yes. Okay. <laughs> in practical effect, yes. Yeah. Do you ever think of your films in that way? That this no. Is 
No. No, but in this case, I knew it was there was a clear goal. Right. And let's uh, perform as good as I can. And I would do a public, how do you call it, service yeah, announcement. Yeah, public service announcement. Uh, but, but with all the intensity and all the craft that I can mu muster. You see, I, I do not li give uh, lectures or a little charity. When I give, I give myself. Yes. And you know who said that? It was Walt Whitman who said that once. Yeah. And I have adopted it. What inspires you, and this will be the end of it, to um, to make a documentary, I mean, when you, how does it, how, like you know, Grizzly Man or this Lo and Behold or, or the the one about the monks as well. I mean, what what? How do you find the topics? Where where does it come? Very often they stumble into me, mm -hmm. and uh, I have never been like somebody who plans a career. And after I'm finishing a film, I'm looking at the New York Times best-selling list yeah. of novels. Ah, yeah, that one I should make into a movie. It never has happened like this. Very often films have found me. Uh, many times they come as uninvited guests, like the burglars at night. <laughs> but um, <laughs> since I'm a storyteller, I would instantly, instantly know this is big. This is so big, I have to do it. Yeah. And it happened exactly like that with Grizzly Man, for example. Do you miss film? Like actual film? Celluloid. Now I'm not nostalgic. I, I still, I love it. Yeah. Of course I love it. Yeah. But um, digital filmmaking has allowed me to work faster. Yeah. And to work um, less expensively. Mm-hmm. So that's why all of a sudden I'm uh, coming out with four films, all of them ready for, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for distribution. The system of distribution is too slow for my output. Right. What, what did you lose with celluloid? What do you lose? Um, well, the kind of magic of the flicker mm -hmm. of 24 frames in a theater. Yeah. And celluloid, you always have to understand it as a layer, a three-dimensional thin layer yeah. of emulsion mm -hmm. that stores your uh, information, mm -hmm. whereas a digital film is, is only a file of zeros and ones. Right. And there's a strange, we, we sense that there's a different life to it. Right. And but and, and also I imagine that the an editing process yeah. is a bit more decisive. When you are in celluloid, you better uh, come to some conclusions quickly. And what I see today, digital editing, there are directors who don't know what they are doing, and they create twenty-two parallel versions and never can decide. Yeah. But I'm editing almost as fast as I'm thinking. Oh, well, oh so that because you can only do I do on not digital. have to search mm -hmm. for the small reel of film and. <laughs> And, right. and, and look for um, making some pen marks on it and glue it, splice it together and feed it into a system and roll it to the right moment. So I'm I'm editing much, much, much faster. Closer nowadays. to writing. Closer to writing in a way, yes. Now, just uh, in terms of film, I, I know that you were close with, with Roger Ebert and that, the, that what was once um, a, a fairly sort of uh, there, there are a few champions of, of the cultural and uh, artistic importance of film. Do you, do you, 
do are you do you feel that it it it, it still has the proper uh, place in the world of art do you feel that you know that film is still being reckoned with in the proper way culturally and critically when he was afflicted by illness yeah and he could not speak anymore he would use uh, the internet and a laptop for creating his voice it was digitally re uh, configured uh -huh. and it was his voice that would answer to you so the glory of the internet at the same time he said to me Werner watch out there's something I will die soon you better be uh, vigilant and watch out and you have to be a guardian read and I said Roger of course I read and I keep postulating read 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 but I mean books and at the same time um, he kept saying Kids, young kids, should go out and dig a hole in the ground. Period. <laughs> and I find it beautiful. God bless his soul. That's Roger beautiful. Ebert. That's a yeah. nice closer. Thank you, Werner. Thank you. Sweet ending. What a thrill. And what a privilege to talk to Werner Herzog. That movie is, is really great. It, it, well, you know, if you're a fan of his, you know that his documentaries are always powerful and poetic and disturbing and beautiful. Lo and behold, Reveries of the Connected World in theaters and on demand this Friday, August 19th. Go to WTFPod.com for all that stuff. Okay. Fuck it. Boomer lives. <laughs>